in the saddle again and do not worry there will be no more equestrian references in the rest of this podcast in this installment of the dookie radio show i've got ben wood from ben wood and the bad ideas in the studio a dear dear friend and occasional musical partner in crime the incredibly talented singer and songwriter and myself will delve into the very catalogue of ingredients that have helped to shape the man musically we kick off the interview by talking about film surveys and we end our hour-long chat by having a bit of banter about tea. In between, we spin a yarn or two about throwing on-stage wobblers, my propensity for having Gordon Ramsay moments and the fact that asking for poop scoops can change your life. All will be revealed later. Come on, get on with it, will ya? All of London, even the handbags, are swinging to the sides of the Dookie Radio Show. The Dookie Radio Show does not broadcast on a frequency that exists. However, it's available for download every Monday if you're up for it. And oh, heads up, you are. Listen, I know we've been away, but it's going to be weekly again. So you've got to tune in, innit? I really dislike surveys in which film directors talk about their favourite films because right. invariably The Godfather appears left, right, and centre. Of and The a, Deer Hunter. The Deer Hunter, and a fantastic series of films are getting referenced straight across the board. Of course. And I get far more excited when the Martin Scorsese's of the world cite a film which you would not imagine in a million years that a world famous. A-list director would consider to be one of their faves. Right. You know, something like Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. <laughs> Instead, you get loads and loads of directors who choose predictably brilliant films. And they are brilliant. For instance, Citizen Kane, a much-loved, deservedly so, cinematic masterpiece which ends up in more directors' best-of lists than any other film. Inherently, I don't like surveys, and I feel that directors and anybody who's asked to take part in a survey of their favourite films are under pressure to illustrate how intellectual they are. With that in mind, I'd like to ask you about your musical influences, but... I'd rather hear about your guilty pleasures. I don't want to know about the obvious, incredibly famous and well-regarded musicians that have helped to shape you. Because people, if they listen to your music, they will hear elements of that. Because, yeah. as Keith Richards once said, if you're a musician, everything that you listen to comes out in what you play. Yes, of course. Any guilty pleasures that you... Oh, my goodness. Ben Wood of Benwood and the Bad Ideas. <laughs> in this very long-winded introduction that I've just given here would like to share anything which might be a surprise there are probably far too many to mention Juki to be honest I, I, I think the truth is when I tend to get lost in songs altogether if it's usually the hooks I liked when I was a kid so I was watching a, a, a James Bond film on the TV the other day and I was reminded of my eight-year-old self watching um one of the Roger Moore films, I can't remember what it was, the one with Christopher Walken in it, you'd know that one. He, he, uh, I can't remember which one it was. View to a Kill, I believe. Quite right. My name was Max Zarin. <laughs> I am a, an evil Bond villain. 
judging from that bad impression, I think Walken spent some time in China prior to saying that. He's got a blimp and all sorts of stuff. And Christopher Walken is very blonde in this film. If you remember, there was a certain track um, of, with a, 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 the same title uh, performed by a... Durren Durren. Durren Durren, indeed. And, um, Produced by Bernard Edwards of Chic fame. Absolutely right. I think the thing is, I've got so many guilty pleasures because, it, it, you know, the, the music I like to, to write is I like a hook, I like it catchy particularly on the pushes and in the chorus and I was listening to um, that that song the uh, dance into the fire it's a che- as cheesy as it gets you've got the the video set in Paris and everything Simon Le Bon finishing the video with the names Bon Simon Le Bon and it's that real 80s uh, it's Duran Duran for Christ's sake but it, I love that song chic. I think it's a great chorus I went uh, I was looking at the original demo of it which is um not quite as polished, shall we say. Definitely not. Here's a little snippet of Durren Durren doing what they do best. It's amazing what is together in this embryonic version of View to a Kill and also what isn't. I love the the theme tune from the Raccoons. I think that's a fantastic track. Um, it depends who you're talking to. If you get the sense if you're talking to someone and they might have it, they might consider that pleasure to be guilty. I certainly don't. But yeah, that would be one of them. Duran Duran. Perhaps but guilty pleasure is the wrong phrase, but maybe uh, something which has helped to shape you, which would not be as obvious. Oh, I'm with you, yes, of course. As, say, the seminal artists that people will love and cite as... Well, do you know what? I remember the the first record I ever got my hands on. It was a cassette in those days. It was Roy Orbison's Love Songs collection. I think that was an unusual thing. I loved his stuff. I used to listen to The Sounds of the 60s a lot as a kid and watch that that program. Do you like The Sounds of the 60s? I know I do. The miniskirts were short. The songs, even more so. It was was a strange thing, but I liked it. So it was that, and I saved up the coupons on the back of Walker's Crisps packets for our price, and I bought Queen's Greatest Hits too. So somewhere between Roy Orbison and Queen's Greatest Hits too, though they they register higher on the canon dookie, um, it probably could be regarded as a a pleasure of the guilty variety, (laughs) I would say. A few of the tracks that you initially mentioned came out around the time that you were born. You are a child of the of the 80s. That's right. Yet, you also mentioned two other decades. Yeah. You mentioned Sounds of the 60s, as well as Queen. And you might not know this, but I am all about Queen's Hot Spaces album from, I think, 1982 or so is when it came out. It, it's not their finest effort which is all the reason more whenever Queen comes up in conversation I will lie and say that Hot Spaces is the benchmark with which (laughs) all the other Queen albums should be judged yeah Calling All Girls is the best thing they ever wrote Bohemian what? (laughs) (laughs) Bohemian what indeed I I don't I think if I think of a guilty pleasure I look back at more of the things that might make me cringe in my formative years of putting wanting to put music together and uh listening to songs like that I am a real sucker for those 80s those 80s tunes I always have been but Give any, me some anything catchy will do well this is the thing then you stray into your you stray into the, the canon I like Depeche Mode you start to go into something that could be seen as being quite cool Depeche love- Mode obviously are going to resonate in different ways yeah uh, number one an incredibly catchy back catalogue yeah absolutely number two a band from Essex and yes, you indeed. are yeah. from Essex yourself they hail from Basildon I'm originally from Harwich right on the right a on the back skirts. but we, we're Colchester is what people would know closer to Colchester right on the clay right in Essex Colchester but, a city which gave the world blur yes indeed yeah 
as and Cradle of Filth, I think, at some point. So that's a bit of a difference, but there were a few a few bands coming out of there. Colchester also gave the world the song "I Melt with You" by Modern English, a, a 1980s right. mm-hmm. track which crossed the pond in a big way. It was a big yeah. MTV hit for them. Colchester is a big garrison town. The military, does it have any impact on your upbringing at all and your family? Um, I guess so. I think there's um, certainly there's members of my family who have served and more so friends who, who have done the same. And if you go to gigs out in Colchester, there might be a lot of soldiers about. But you had those venues like the Arts Centre and the Twist... I'm sure you'd have played in your time, Jukey. And um, it's... Uh... I have played the Twist a number of times. A great venue. Is it still going? The last that I heard, the Twist in Colchester was no more. But uh, it, it had uh, a bit there of were a... rumours of uh, reopening. There, there's always a rumour of it reopening, but they still haven't got rid of that sort of central pillar where you can't see the stage from the back. But I think it, it's a great venue, and I certainly hope so. But I, in, in all honesty, Jukey, I don't know. This is, it's... Um, there's always been this scene there in Colchester for for bands, and it's good to see when I go back there. If you, you're walking out with a mate, having a, a few beers, you're you're going to hear live music around. Not as much as I'd like, but it's great to hear. As for a sort of military, um, I, I guess I've I've certainly seen bands on the scene who have taken on that a Billy Bragg kind of like soldiers do style. And certainly when you see any sort of performance poetry, there might be an element of that. But generally, generally, no. If you were to get a load of the the lads from the forces back, I'm sure they're going to want to get into a O'Neill's and listen to some good old pub rock. I don't know, some Green Day or something like that. I don't know if it, I don't know if it affects the music. Um, certainly, uh, in years gone by, I've written songs that have had that... Uh, as a theme, nothing that really came to to cut. But you meet, I think you meet people when you're out and about, and a lot of my friends are soldiers, and they're interesting stories they come up with, and um, sometimes that inspires you to to write to write songs. I met an Irish soldier, Daniel Stewart, lovely, lovely fella. Um, I met him in O'Neill's, funny enough. Really great guy, great taste in music, and um, I think he was keen to get out of the, the forces at the time. But I wrote a song about him that never really went anywhere but it sometimes it can it can creep into the music i'm sure As, a, apart from some, some seriously good uh, drum beats as well <laughs> when did the transformation from music fan to music creator take place for you? Um, um well i was writing very young i, I started to find there was always guitars around the house when i was a kid my dad played and I started learning when I was like six and had a great many years learning the wrong way self-taught. But what I used to like to do was watch these things like Sounds of the 60s and listen to stuff on the radio and see how quickly I could work that out myself, my own way of playing it. And around that time, there weren't loads of things that I was really enjoying that was current. It was all older stuff, and like you said earlier, it had been a few, a good few decades before I was born. And I guess as soon as I started to learn those tracks, I started to think about putting combinations of my own together. So the first songs came very, very quickly. I was a child wanting to write lyrics. Did you feel that you had something to say even at such a young age? No, of, no, no. It was, was it pure, just it was about purely just uh, observations about your mum in a lovely marigold, <laughs> taking on a dirty, <laughs> dirty grease encrusted oven. Mm. Yeah, it, I, I, I don't think you're really conscious of that at, at that stage. It's not when you get into your teens and you start to think about 
uh, things that are grossly unfair or things that, oh, you've got something to shout about and you form those opinions. No, not at all. I, I was simply doing it because I enjoyed it so much, which is good because it kept me playing all the time. So all the time you're doing that, you're kind of honing your skills a bit. I just did it because I liked it. And then later on it was more... Um, Okay, well, let's see if... You might as well be saying something. I've always believed that you've got to write about what you know. And if you don't... If, you, if you're not prepared to... If, if you're going to write something and you don't really know what it's about, that's going to come across. And I think later on I realised that you have to do something. So, my, for example, uh, my, my naughty seven-year-old self writing about the, the, the fantasy gig that I hadn't played to... Um, that wasn't ever going to resonate. So later on, you you find ways to make it ring ring true. You just wanted to be honest with it, and and you've still got to keep enjoying it. Otherwise, you know yourself, Duke. Otherwise, there's no point. The first time I ever saw you perform was actually the second time that I met you. You were performing solo, acoustically, outdoors, White Cross Street, London. There yeah. was a fair going on, mm. and you were there without a PA, acoustic guitar belting it out over the noises that you associate with a loud market and yep. music blasting out from food stores and what really struck me is just how focused you were and how organic the whole setup was you were there and had a look of listen I'm here I'm doing I'm this cause song, a so listen to yeah. me and, and <laughs> if, if some people walked by and only checked out you know, sort of ten bars of what you were doing. Yeah. That was great. And for those people that wanted to s stay and hear the songs all back to back, they were in for one hell of a of a <laughs> surprise. You know, why is this man here just performing on the street? Being the the first question that would come to mind. Yeah. And that's what that meeting and seeing you doing that. It, you know, certainly became the embryo for Ben Wood and the Bad Ideas. Yes. Yeah. Now you were playing obviously on your own. Acoustically at this at that juncture, yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at this uh, shindig on Whitecross Street. Had you ever been in a band before, or had you always been that Neil Young style unplugged artist, just out there doing it on your own? I think well, it's a bit of both, really. I think the truth is, I always wanted to play in a band because I like playing with other people. I like sharing the songs with other people and what they can bring to it. I think it's a it can be a lonely thing if you start as young as I did. You kind of you want to you want to share it. You want to have someone to share it with. Particularly if you do something live, the you know yourself from bands. You, you, the best bit is the debrief. You know you talk about what's gone right, what's gone wrong, and I always romanticised about that. So yeah, there were a few bands, not on a serious level. Everything I was doing I was constantly writing, playing live where I could, and. Not really coming to the ball till quite later on, um, and I think I got to the stage where I thought I've got some some songs here I'm I'm, I'm pleased with. Uh, let's go out and do it. And the busking did a a hell of a lot for teaching me about performance because, as you say, it's the footfall. You meet. Uh, I've met people trying to take money out of the case. At, um, uh, embankment and and tramps throwing coffee cups in there, and lo people wanting to stop and chat and people ignoring it uh, but it teaches you a lot about character building you, well yeah there's an element of that because you, you, you take the odd bit of abuse if you get a, a crowd of drunken lads come past you get it's going to happen and then you get a crowd of uh, spanish tourists sat around taking photos it's great and it was a, a wonderful thing because it was so organic and um it was just a great time to learn learn your craft I, i'd learn I'd, I'd play the songs you'd expect a busker to play um what was interesting is, as you say, you get those those seven or eight bars where you've got that chance to stop that guy with a briefcase who's darting for that tube to try and make some kind of an impact. And you, you learn what registers with people quickly. And I think that's really important because you can't expect people to... Um, you can't just expect to have their attention. You've got to focus it with your writing, with your performance. You can't ever take that for granted. And busking taught me a lot about that and it also gave me an opportunity to when it quietened down a little bit at, I don't know, temple wherever the hell it was you'd um th those the acoustics down there can be fan they can be dreadful but they they can be fantastic and to try out 
you know, really blast the pipes and, and learn about your voice and projection and doing it completely um, unplugged. It was such a cool experience and I met a lot of great musicians doing that and it led to some really cool things such as uh, Ben Wood and the Bad Ideas. How did the transformation from working solo with an acoustic guitar around your neck, how did that feel to go from that dynamic to suddenly having loud drums and guitars and... yeah. <laughs> all the fun and glory that goes with well, working you, you with other musicians. It. You said it. It, it. it was the the thing is. I think when you when you're writing a song, I always had them with a band in mind. So that's why I'd always. There's only so much you can do by yourself. So you start to have as a guitarist a kind of percussive style, or your attack. You have to think very carefully about. But I would always write other guitar parts because I heard in my head how I'd want them to play out and. A lot of those songs, I already had an idea of how they would um, transpose to full band. And lucky enough, we had the opportunity to do that. So basically, it, it was a wonderful thing. Slightly different, because there's other things you have to take into consideration. And you, do, you can't just say, OK, I'm going to play exactly how I played it, with the acoustic straight, but you're going to play these drums, we're going to have this kind of... But you've got, to, you've got to look at the song all over again. You've got to give it a treatment and think about it and how that's going to work. Because they're two very, very different things, Juki. It's been said thousands of times, you know, if you can do a song with just voice and an acoustic guitar, that is a strong song. And if you've got that as a, a template to work with... Absolutely. It yeah, it teaches you about stripping... It's a good thing. It, yeah, it teaches you about stripping down, but I think it, that's what's so nice, is it, it's organic, and certainly with bad ideas we built everything up so organically and it, to, to, to go then to to a, a full band and kind of it having having a rock and roll edge to it is it's um it but i think the organic stuff stayed i do think it, it it was still stripped down and i think that's kind of testament to how we looked at the songs and, and paid a lot of attention it wasn't just a question of yeah let's put this behind it and let's put that behind it thought very carefully but having the organic thing there is, is so important because you can hear it a really unique aspect of Benwood and the bad ideas is that whenever the group performed live we had very little idea in terms of who would be on stage and how we would actually portray ourselves yes yeah Benwood and the bad ideas over the space of one year had Three drummers, one of whom <laughs> genuinely yeah. was Paul Cook of the Sex Pistols. Yes, indeed. Two bass players, and the last show that Ben Wood and the Bad Ideas did was done as a duet with yourself and myself, in which I was playing foot drums. Yes. This says a great deal about working with drummers. Discuss. Uh, doesn't, it, doesn't it just? Well, you've... Um Talk about opening a can of worms, but drummers, incredible people, incredible people. It's the dexterity is incredible, but you do you do have that element of um, it, uh, there's the element of I think we've discussed it before where if you if you take a kid and uh, when you're learning to play an instrument and if it's in your nature to do that if it's in your blood to do it and you get the opportunity to choose the instrument you choose the one if you're going to pick the one that goes bang bang. That's going to say something about your character. And I think, God bless, uh, drumming-wise, yeah, we had some... some uh, we had different incarnations. We, uh, very regularly, we'd have a, a line-up change. But I think that was quite healthy because, it, it again, it gave it that... It, it, being able to adapt, I think, I think that's really important because I think you can see when... If you go out on the scene, you can see when materials, you know, when you're peddling it a little too far, perhaps. And being able to adapt, I think, is really important. So if you're in a situation where you want to do a show that's booked, and you know how it is if someone isn't available, if you, to be able to do it as a, as, a, as a duo, I think it's a special thing. To have that option there. I'm not talking about doing unplugged set. I mean, that's a wonderful thing too. But to be able to think about, okay, well, how would we feel the space if you take away a drummer if you take away a bassist it's simple you go back to strip it right back again to that busking to that acoustic 
substitute the acoustic with a Telecaster and then do the foot drums. Let's fill space. Play drums at the uh, bass at the same time. I don't quite know how you did it, but Jesus, it was... Uh, it, it did I don't work. know how I did it. <laughs> it's... There are, and that had a, a look there are some debates as to whether or not it was even done. There were a lot of Mark 1s, Mark 2s of, of that particular rig, but it used to get a lot of, I remember playing it in Camden one time, and, uh, it, the, and the rig, the drum rig, and the, was qu- getting quite special at the time, when it was being played with thimbles, um, with one particular drummer. Uh, it was just a cool thing. We, we, we played some Pancras, who did the Yester Life, and... Got that, the headline slot there. Yes. That was that was pure um, stripped down cajon box with the the hi hat and the. It, it was great. It was great to have something non-standard at the back and and to have it if it was working well sonically. It, it you kind of didn't miss the drum kit. No, and to be able to perform at St Pancras Station, which is beautiful, at rush hour, which is really full on and to have as an audience member comedian extraordinaire Eddie Izzard (laughs) or as the North Americans call him Eddie Izzard fun times yeah that that made me jump a little bit but that was an interesting thing because we um, as you remember we we booked uh, I think we we were playing I was wearing King's Cross that week and kind of geared up for that but get, getting the headline slot there was interesting because I'd spent so much time playing at, at train stations down on the tube and then to go into a different guys with a band with not being on your own um, and being able to have that space and the the, the sound if you remember was superb because the, 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 PA the recording was engineer was superb and there was a lot of I mean you imagine some pancreas on a, on a Friday evening or I can't remember if it was Friday or Saturday very busy thousands of people and people a lot of people stopping and it was great it was a great show but it's um yeah i did i did jump when i looked up and he was he was there watching i think he, he looked like he was getting a euro star or something it, it was it was on his commute but he did stop to have a a cheeky a cheeky watch he has good taste yeah of course and a few months later the flip side to that gig was was doing a show down the road from King's Cross Tube at a place called Star of Kings yeah. where Ben Wood and the Bad Ideas were supporting a headline artist a headline poet called Worm Woman oh, she yeah. writes poems exclusively about worms. There's a particularly good one about the worms of Bravington Row. That's right, yeah. And the worms' uh, place in in history as yes. sort of the founding the, the, the founding thing of civilization. It's a, an incredible woman, an incredible woman. She's been doing that for a long time, and I'm she sure there's has. I'm sure there's people out there listening who've seen this 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 lady doing them doing her set. She, Fantastic, but a strange um, situation to be supporting. But those nights were very eclectic. Uh, Absolutely, <laughs> around, in, in, around King's Cross of an yeah. evening. It's King's Cross. What can you say? But yeah. it's weird to be bringing kind of you know five instruments, strange bits of electronics and mixing gear. Yeah, and to realise that the headlining act is a, is a, a worm poet. Lady? Yeah, a worm poet. Of That's it is. kind of an example of. The the downside to oh, God. I mean, to doing the circuit and to also be doing the circuit with a non-standard setup. You know, we could easily have gone the route of just having a drummer behind a normal drum kit and yeah, and I think, all of that. I think we, you're right, and it was it was the desire to be out playing at all costs. So whereas there'd be a situation where bands would say, "No, we want to," yeah, we got a gig at the end of the month. Let's focus on that. Da da da. We do we do it for band. This is how we do it. No, it was fun to shake things up and have a different, um, different lineup, different kit we'd use to modify that kit, to change it up, to change the songs up all the time, and to play it in different venues, play in places where it was kind of difficult to, to play. To be honest, and it's one thing doing gigs like that with a non-standard setup in the capital. It's a whole other sport when you're taking a strange non-standard setup out to the remote outposts of England. With our setup, it was quite heavily reliant on 
a good PA. A good PA, good sound and system, yeah. ideally, a good sound engineer. And in not many always, instances, yeah. we, we had neither. Or just one, but not the other. Yeah, that happened a lot. And you referred to a lot of my behaviour at some of these shows <laughs> as... Gordon Ramsay moments. Oh yes, yeah, very much. Do you much care to so. discuss this? Um, this is is Dukey's passion coming to the fore, I think. And you're a perfectionist when it comes to the the tunes and and how you want it to go out. But at the same time, really adaptable and, and happy to play anywhere, anytime. But my goodness, yeah, we had some things go down that were were. Not ideal, and some no. some quite and some important gigs as well. When then the kit was not behaving itself. So when we've got a it's kind of purpose built hockey puck with a piazza pickup in it to, to make that snare sound, and it were, um it wasn't working. Uh, it was frustrating. There were frustrating times. I mean, Shut it down. Uh, you, I think Gordon Ramsay. It, there were the moments. There were the moments when we'd. Uh, I think you get into a situation where you do get close as a band and you do have to vent to one another. It's Absolutely. A, it's, it's creative. It's a creative space. It also and happens in the catering industry as well. Yeah, which... it is like the heat of the kitchen. It really was. And it was um, Dukey's Kitchen Nightmares on some What's occasions of an evening. But you're, you're always your lovely self. I've, oh, I've had, you. I've had the odd prima, diplomatic. I've had the odd prima donna moment myself. No, it happens. Never. It happens. And never. We've all had the refusal to play in the... It, I think sometimes the odds are stacked against you and you just desperately want to play and, and they, things do go wrong some nights and when you've you're, you're really looking forward to playing and <laughs> you're just going to succumb to it sometimes and I think that's why it's important to be adaptable and play lots of shows and it, it means that when those things come up you're able to to adapt but there were those nights when ev- 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 Murphy's Law what can go wrong wrong will go wrong and everything <laughs> everything went, went wrong that Every Murphy single- family oh yeah that yeah. Murphy family need to be sorted out if you know what I mean absolutely mate it went it was it, yeah it was tough we had our own Spinal Tap moment as well yes. where there was a show which was so bad that you threw a bit of a, a wobbler I did <laughs> during it and we cut the set short by oh about 85% yeah and I drove you back home to Essex yeah to to have the longest and most important post gig debriefing session that we've ever had we were fine with each other but it was very much a case of kind of whinging about the situation and questioning what it was all about which is absolutely healthy yeah and when we were driving home we saw the immediate and very bloody aftermath of a car accident. Yes, we did. And yeah. saw dead bodies on yeah. the road. A, I think you came out with uh, something along the lines of, that puts a lot of perspective on things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> At least they didn't do a it's, bad gig tonight. Yeah, yeah, precisely. <laughs> you think you've got problems? Yeah, I've just, they di- didn't have I've to just hear died woman. on my ass in King's Cross. And yeah, it, I think it's true. I think the thing is, it's born out of passion. And it, I think. You, you kind of can sometimes you can run the risk of taking yourself too seriously and when you're writing songs that you actually genuinely have lyrics in there that mean something to you you leave yourself vulnerable and I think it can be so emotionally charged and you get so excited about certain shows and that was what was frustrating because I'm a pretty plastic guy I thought it's that I'm the last one to uh, throw down the guitar and, say, and refuse to play it was an unusual in fact I, I remember you laughing for a good three or four hours, That's, as opposed to you saying, "Oh, for God's sake, what's he doing?" It was more of a, "Oh, I never thought this would happen," and it was a bit of a, a bump in the road, and uh, it was. But that's, this is the, the support network you have as a band. You you kind of come back together, and we played that show a week later. We went back to do do the gig, and uh, yeah, the drive home though that was after a, a lot of whinging about a show that we managed to get one tune out of. Um, and it seemed like the end of the world because it means a lot to you. And then you drive, you're driving home from London, and you see, yeah, you see the the, the aftermath of something that actually is particularly serious uh, and fatal. You, it really was quite gruesome. Yeah, it gives you that perspective. Was I certainly stopped moaning as soon as we passed that that no, incident. You didn't. No, you didn't. No, you carried on. I like to think I did. Maybe. Yeah. No. I think it, it may have been five minutes afterwards. So. <laughs> 
it brought me it brought me back down. I yeah. think it took a while to sink in. Yes. Yeah. And bless. And then we wrote a song called Dead Bodies on the Road. We did. Yeah. What a number. Yes. It was really, really good. 1930s gem, which we're going to play in just a moment. I first heard it acoustically as a bit of a sound check track that you were doing before we were setting up at one of our shows. Yeah. And in the back of my head, I thought, ooh, that's a good one. And <laughs> why aren't we doing that one in the set? Sure enough, it ended up getting the bad ideas treatment. This and does, yeah. the, the, the track sounds great. And the, the video for it, which you can view on YouTube, just Google Ben Wood and the Bad Ideas and 1930s Gem, is absolutely stunning. Can you Lovely. tell me a little bit about the gestation of the track and what inspired you to set finger to fret? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think something I've noticed over the years when you are writing songs, it's, sometimes it comes quickly, sometimes it doesn't, but certainly the ones I'd consider to be the better tracks, it goes back to a bit that organic thing. It happens very quickly. And it was around the time... It was the time of the, the London riots, and... Uh, my sister was living in Hackney and uh, I think the guy, she lived on top of an off-licence and the, the, the down, down below in the off-licence, it was trashed, it was looted to, to bits and the poor guy, his, his business was affected. Uh, London was in absolute turmoil and at the same time the Olympic thing was starting to pick up, the stadium, was, every time I was coming into London having moved out, you'd see the stadium taking and the East End coming alive and then you've got this real um, tinderbox of, uh, leading up to the riots and that's what the song's in, inspired by is this is London in a real turning point at a real turning point with the one a bit of an imbalance uh, of, of things and I guess it's I suppose it's just it, it, what was it? It was about a building that was burnt to the ground, and a, a building from the 30s that had. Um, it was, I saw it on a, a very short news flash, and it was a, if this gorgeous old kind of deco-style building had been burnt to the ground, and that's where the opening line comes from. They built up a stadium and, and burnt down a 1930s gem, and I think that set the tone. And I, I was sitting on my bed with a, a, an old strat and playing away. At this little damping of two chords, and it just came, and it, that that was the line, and it it just it, it wrote itself very very quickly, and I used to like playing it to start us off because it it was a nice song to damp the guitar to, and it it got my fingers moving. <laughs>
In the video for 1930s Gem, Midlands-born actor Clive Owen very nearly appeared in he it. He did, yeah. There was a, a unfortunately he, he couldn't attend, but um, yeah. So he was the, he's the patron of a, a beautiful old cinema in my hometown in Harwich in Essex called the Electric Palace. Uh, if you you film lovers out there who want to go and have the, the real film experience, you need to go and see it. It's a, it's an incredible place. Uh, and people are doing some fantastic work there. Clive Owen being one of them. He's the patron of that cinema. He lives nearby. And uh, they agreed to, to uh, after asking them very nicely if it would be okay. I mean, the original idea was, okay, well, let's go out and g- get into the essence of this. It's a, it's a, a, 1930s Gem is a love letter to London. But going down to the uh, the Electric Palace, that, that beautiful old building, and... It was just a lovely place to go in and play. Unfortunately, Clive couldn't make it, but I'm sure he regrets it. And uh, He was going to be the ticket seller, wasn't he? That was the idea. That was the idea. <laughs> I think. I'm not sure um, quite what happened he there. He had a better I, offer he, elsewhere. He had other commitments. I think he made a mistake, myself. But I'm, Absolutely, bastard. But we'll, uh, Clive, if you're listening to this, <laughs> you can fuck off right now, you <laughs> asshole. <laughs> but it's... Um, it, it, what a great vid and the guys down there were so kind and we had a fantastic time going down there and uh, such a wonderful building and a really good time too I think it it, it, it suits the song and I re- we really enjoyed it it's very again it's an organic thing we went down there and and got in there and I, I'd been going there to watch films since I was a kid and seeing the place empty and it's just a lovely building and it, the song is also about those those places that we have in this country that we kind of walk past and I mean these places that if if you, unless you take care of them they die a death there was that like the 12 bar on Denmark Street people are not looking after wonderful places and it's a dreadful shame and I guess I was a bit it was that's me having a rant that's the thing I couldn't do when I was seven I didn't really have a voice then but you've got the voice once, now yeah once I saw away. the in, once I uh, yeah saw the injustice I thought I'd best uh, put it to an electric guitar based song and change the whole damn thing but yeah and talking about electric guitars yes a friend of mine who is also a musician Peter Cowens is his name and he is in or was in a band sadly they are defunct called Two-Headed Coin Two-Headed Coin and uh, who we had the pleasure of playing with in London a couple of years back yes Uh, Yes. he now lives in Oklahoma City he married an American lass hence the reason why that Two-Headed Coin are no more but the one Shame, observation that he made about yourself mm-hmm. for such a manly man <laughs> I think it's awesome that he's got a pink guitar your 1972 <laughs> Fender Mustang oh. is in a beautiful shade of bubblegum pink it is and he's right it, it yeah. is an unlike- it's truly an unlikely instrument for your good self well people I but think you it, rock it. it does make people jump because you know when we turn up to shows and I think I don't know if it's just me but if I if I saw a group of lads walk in and I ascertained very quickly that they were a band you start to think about well who does what 
Um, I remember in a music rag years and years ago when that hyper trendy band The Strokes came out and a big hype about them coming out uh, with this record in uh, months before they'd got this fantastic black and white New York style photo of these lads all sat around a table and you're thinking well who does what? He looks like the singer, he looks like the drummer. People are going to assume I'm the drummer <laughs> because it's a... Uh, yeah, I, they wouldn't assume naturally that I'd be going out front, but and certainly once they get past that and we start to sound check and we might blast the pipes and have a little sing song, I don't think they. Ex- I think they expect to see a big fat old Gibson ES three three five or something like that because I'm a, I'm a big lad, um, but a, a seventy two Fender Mustang in, in pink, kind with the pearlescent scratch plate. Uh, it pumps my head, so no, it's certainly. I think there's always it, they always look at it and think that that's not the guitar I put with him. But my God, you you know the guitar. It, it's a it's an absolute gem. It is a, a 1972 gem. It's, it's a gorgeous. thing of beauty. It sounds great. It looks great, and I think you rock it. And it's become associated with the band, which is is really nice. It looks great in the video. The bits of footage which had that saturated. 1970s looking yeah yeah um, and it super kind of, 8 colour yeah, it ble- it's, yes indeed it's yeah. very very vivid it, it bleeds it does bleed uh, to white in red to uh, pink to white it's, it's, it's a it's a lovely guitar it sounds amazing and I really enjoy really enjoy playing that live you know we, we are um, fans of our six strings and we're lucky enough to have some beautiful pieces in the camp so we're able to Utilize this. It's but a it, good life. Yeah, it's a very we're good lucky, life. We're the lucky boys. I envy us. I, I envy us. We're Incidentally, listeners may not realise how Ben Wood and myself actually met. Uh-huh. Although it might be quite rock and roll to illustrate the fact that I saw you on our second meeting while you were busking away, <laughs> a journeyman, a vagabond on the streets of. Clarkenwell. That was me. Our first meeting, the inaugural meeting, did take place in slightly non-standard circumstances. Yes. You were working with dogs. I was. You were a volunteer. Nothing's changed. Yes. (laughs) You were working at Guide Dogs. Yeah. The charity which it does what it says on the tin. (laughs) And at that particular time... I was a foster carer for a lovely guide dog, a guide dog in training for nine months named Samson. The beautiful Samson, wonderful And on a daily basis, you were there to meet and greet me. Our first genuine exchange involved me asking if you had any doggy poop scoops. You then very, very kindly beckoned me to follow you. We then... Walked down a labyrinth of hallways to this very intimate, very small stockroom. You then handed me a huge watch (laughs) of green poop scoops and said... Something for the weekend, sir. And it was love at first (laughs) poop scoop. (laughs) I sensed sensed, uh, something coming off of you, and I think it was a... Apart from the fumes, it it was a... (laughs) It was a business f- as usual. <laughs> it was a chance meeting that led to b- bigger and more wonderful things. We're very lucky. From the stock room to the world. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And via Guide Dogs came the track Lead Me On. Apart from the fact that Lead Me On is notable for being number one, an awesome tune, mm-hmm. number two, featuring the drums of Paul Cook. X Sex Pistol. It is indeed about the whole dynamic of guide dogs and the people who have them as a part of their lives and how their lives get improved by the by the interaction and partnership between well, you, user and you know, guide dog. It's a. Uh, I was in a situation where, it, like all musicians, we've got to have a day job too. It's tough out there, so you'd be. Alongside the busking and, the, and playing the gigs, that was what I was doing in the daytime. I was a support worker, and my job was to uh, liaise and catch up with these guys who were um, guide dog users. And I think people don't realise that the, it's a wonderful thing they do. Um, I wasn't there a great deal of time, but I, I certainly learned that 
without those um, creatures, you, those people, they, they improve their lives dramatically. It can be very, very lonely uh, to a blind person. I know because I spoke to them every day. I met them every day. And those dogs just change lives totally. And I wanted to get into the headspace of what it must be like to... Because we all have those moments where you, you know you feel sorry for yourself. I mean, we like we discussed coming back from the King's Cross gig. I threw my Telecaster down in a huff, and then you see a car accident at the side of the road. You need those levelers, and it certainly did that for me. But I think that what shook me it, it was writing this song. Okay, I'm taking the character of, uh, say, a blind person, and seeing how that would be. Um, sometimes it seems like I'm living in the shadows and the, the, the opening lines to me is always, are always important in the song what was kind of a really this is going to sound like a really a wanky songwriter thing to say but it's true and the more I went on writing it the more I could relate to that or certainly thought I could of course I can't but I, I tried to write a song from the perspective of someone else I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan he can write about these characters He and so uh, it is so true the way he creates these characters. But he can write from the perspective of someone else, someone who isn't him, and I think it's an incredible gift. Not everyone can do that. In fact, it's rarer than you might think to do it well. But the more I did that, the more it kind of, I kind of opened a, a, a box up on, on myself there, and it became actually quite an emotionally charged song. shadows I can hear their voices but they they sound so far away sometimes I want to shake someone and say I want you take up the reins in the city in this town but if you can light my way I won't be far behind if you can guide me home I'll never leave your side then my friend, you can leave me on. You can leave me on. When there ain't no give, and when there's no relief, when it feels the world just turned its back and walked right out on me, when it feels like I'm getting away and I'm just feeling my way. In this city, in this town, I won't be far behind. You can guide me home. I'll never leave your side. You can be my friend, then my friend.
Ben Wood and the Bad Ideas there with Lead Me On, featuring Paul Cook of the Sex Pistols on drums. Jesus, you've got one of the Sex Pistols playing with Making you. tea for us. Making tea. and Really good tea as well. Really good tea. The guy knows it's how to make it. not every day you have a Sex Pistol making, making you know, yeah, milk it, no sugar, please. And what a wonderful, wonderful guy. It's such a privilege to be in that studio and acting with him and and just for someone like that and again I refer back to my seven year old self and then you've got a guy who was on one of the most influential records of all time and he said to me this is a really nice song mate and I thought Jesus that's, a, that's, um, that's one of those that's one of those moments where you're like you know what I'm going to die happy now it's, it was a wonderful thing and his drumming was, uh, was just outrageously good he is a brilliant drummer and the way that he Wax that oh, snare. Jesus. Suddenly, you have a bit of the Sex Pistols magic. It really off f- each and every snare here. It was so tangible because, as you remember, we were kind of hyped up about the situation because mm. it was kind of going to happen, then it wasn't going to happen, and um, it was very exciting as fans of the band. And and yep, sure enough, there he was, and he uh, he just went into the booth. And if you remember, we cut it. I uh, we played together. He watched me for the changes. God, I, I don't know. I, I doubt the guy, uh, that he, he sat there um, learning it and taking it apart piece by piece. He's just such a good musician that he was able to follow for the changes. And what he put into it was wonderful. Such an incredible drum. When he hit that snare sound, it did sound like it's like a gunshot. It's like the air was sucked out of the room. Mm. And it, it really was a, a bit of a lesson, uh, a lesson for me, certainly as a musician, to be in the presence of someone like that. He also requested that only half the track be recorded to a click track. That's right, So the second half of it, it was all owned, operated, and indeed dictated by the feel of Mr. Cook. And it meant that you have that regimented tightness for the first half, and it naturally flows from the second half of the track Onwards. I remember before the third take that he did, he we were going through some technical banter in terms of yeah. the feel that we wanted from one bit of the song to another. And then his mobile phone rang. <laughs> That's right. And I was a little bit <laughs> nervous and to kind of break the, not tension, but to neutralise the awe. And there was a lot of awe in that studio. <laughs> While his mobile phone was ringing, I did something a little bit cheeky. I said, Paul, can you tell fucking John Lydon to quit ringing up? You're working now, (laughs) dick. (laughs) It was quite weird saying that to to his ex-piss. It's it's also a bit of a boundary to cross in terms of humour. I'd only met him a a handful of times before we did the session. This was a little risky, but I took a chance. (laughs) Yeah. He laughed, and it, it, it helped to break the ice. You, you, broke, you broke the ice. Who's gonna Who's gonna do a Sex Pistol joke first? You know, who's gonna yeah. Who's gonna ask the real barnacle uh, f- fan question? Who's gonna Who's gonna Who's gonna chart that territory? And it was you, Juki. You You, you gave. The, I took you, a chance. I took a chance. You, you didn't mention Country Life Butter, so that's a bit of a result. No, I didn't. That would have been too obvious. Yeah. And also, while we were sound checking and you know making sure that uh, the levels were right, none of us played any riffs from the Sex Pistols catalogue, and that was oh, super tempting. That was very yeah. Anakin in the UK, it was very. I had pretty bacon in my head personally. Oh, that's the one I wanted to yeah, churn well, that, out. Yeah, riff wise, that's a, that's the a one that springs to mind, isn't it? But oh, what a session! It was fantastic. The thing that's also great is after he had finished his drum tracks he hung around he hung around for other bits to be put down and was being super supportive he didn't need to do that for the most part and for people out there in the non-musical world the the notion that bands are constantly hanging out together in the studio could not be further from the truth usually drummers in particular as soon as they've done their bits oh they're down the pub usually yeah, yeah down the pub and he's they don't hang around for the fine tuning bit. No, and Cookie certainly did hang around for that, and it was it was he had brilliant. more tea. He made more tea. Is he it, made more tea. Lovely. I, I, that was the first thing I I said after saying hello when he was at the kettle, and he had some sort uh, a, a, a nondescript mug with some sort of faded text on the back, and he just said, "Do you taste sugar?"
Facebook. Click on your mouse to our Facebook page. Facebook. It's easy to find, it will not take an age. Facebook. www.facebook.com Forward slash The Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show The thin white Dukey is right. Click your way to the Dukey Radio Show Facebook page www.facebook.com forward slash the Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show Well, that's your lot. Ben Wood, what a tremendous talent and one of the warmest people that I know. I can't wait to see and hear him back in circulation soon. Ben Sawyer! You've been listening to the Dukey Radio Show and I've been your host. Until next time, may the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday. Now I need to go off and uh, <clears throat> pop my weasel. Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. Oh, sorry, Dickie. You finished recording? Oh, sorry. I haven't been... I've just got back from Brighton, right? Me and Roy, we took one of them coach trips down there because we like to see the seaside, don't we? And we stayed in a lovely, lovely hotel. And it was a lovely hotel because you get up in the morning, right? And you go and you sit in the dining room and you have a cup of tea, right? And then what was lovely is then, then in the dining room at around 11, at 11 o'clock, then you have a lovely, lovely pint, don't you? And then what you do is then at lunch, they have lovely lunch. So you have a lovely lunch with a lovely pint. It was really lovely. And then what we did was we they had a lovely tea there. So at two o'clock, what you do is you go in and you have... <laughs>